0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where it's our goal to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians, by helping the two professions better understand and work together with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. He blinded us with Science. 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 Actually, he spends a lot of time illuminating us with the details about building science. Join us as Alison Bales, a well-known troublemaker and general pain in the asterisk, shares with us in this podcast the career path that led him to form the Energy Vanguard. You see, a vanguard is a group of people who are at the forefront of a new movement or idea. They are the innovators and pioneers who are pushing the boundaries of what is possible. And yes, Allison's business, the Energy Vanguard, is that. It moves the art and practice of well-applied building science forward by providing excellent HVAC design services, training, an awesome blog, and an or newsletter, and more recently, a book. That's right, a book. The book is titled, A House Needs to Breathe, or Does It? And that book, which we discussed in the podcast, is now available at True Tech Tools. There's a link in the show notes. From the author, again, another link, and on Amazon if you'd like, although Allison says the paper's not as nice is the book you can get from True Tech or from the author himself. It's a very well-written book describing the basic science of residential buildings. And while it describes what is right, cautions on what is wrong, a few myths do get busted along the way, which is always a good thing. Be sure you catch the discussion in this podcast of the COVID risk reduction measures put in place at the Building Science Summer Camp Symposium in 2022. I saw those measures firsthand very interesting process of design and execution. There's a ton of links in the show notes to Allison's LinkedIn profile, the Energy Vanguard website, to the books, the blog, signing up for the newsletter, even the Building Science Boogie Band, and links to the buildingscience.com website, which has many articles describing various practices and case studies in building science. There's also a link on how to build a Corsi-Rosenthal filter box, sometimes also called a Comparato cube. Okay, let's get on with the discussion with Allison Bales and see if he's blinding us with science or illuminating with it. Welcome back, Allison.
1: Thank you. Good to be talking with you again, Bill.
0: Yeah, and it's so nice you had a chance to visit in person here recently. Elson, why don't you tell us about your road trip book tour conference agenda
1: lately? Sure. I left home Sunday. I am doing a book tour in the Northeast in the U.S. and Canada. I traveled up to Pittsburgh first and spent the night at your house and got to see how wonderful that house is and all the stuff you've done for it. And I love so many things about it, especially the outdoor stuff that you've done. Just the integration of indoors and outdoors is amazing there. And from there, I left on Tuesday and headed for Rochester, New York, where I did an evening talk, a short talk and Q&A and sold a few books. And then we went out and went to a a little pub, I guess, and had dinner and drinks. And next day, I headed to New Paltz, New York in the Hudson Valley area. There. I got a tour of an incredibly nice, high-performance, multifamily building called Zero Place. Near net zero, I don't know that they have achieved net zero yet, but they're pretty close. It's a really amazing building. And then the next day, yesterday, I did a day-long workshop on building science. I covered as much of my book as I can in, in one day and left. And right now, I'm sitting in an Airbnb in Worcester, Massachusetts. Tomorrow, I head to Westford, Massachusetts, not far away, and begin building science summer camp there. It's my favorite event of the year. Monday, I get to do a book signing there, so I'm looking to sell more books at summer camp. And then after that, I head up through Maine and into Nova Scotia, where I'm doing a couple of events, a day-long private training for a company, and then an evening talk like I did in Rochester. And from there, back home.
0: So... We jumped right into your agenda, but listeners may not be familiar with who you are, so we need to lay the foundation. That's a good thing you do when you build something, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. So my name is Allison, Allison Bales. Energy Vanguard is my company. I started it in 2008. The company, there's five of us right now. The other four people in the company do mainly HVAC design, residential HVAC design all over the U.S. and sometimes outside the U.S., but mostly U.S., And I write the Energy Vanguard blog. I go out and do speaking events. I have a book out, which is why I'm doing this Northeast book tour. Last October, the book I had been working on for two and a half years finally, finally, finally came out. And I have been going out and doing a bunch of speaking events now that things have opened up again. Yay. So the book is called A House Needs to Breathe or Does It? That second part is really important. And for anybody wondering, I give the answer on page 23 in the book. So
0: I'm going to oh. challenge you. I have one right in front of me.
1: Let's see. I think it's bottom right side. of.
0: Ooh, a house does not need
1: to breathe. There it is. There's the answer. You gave it away, Bill. <laughs> now nobody needs to buy
0: the book. I could There's bleep that out.
1: <laughs> I that out. No no, 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 no. Leave that in there. No, I'm not afraid to tell the answer right up front. That doesn't mean you know a lot about it. There's a lot to it. It's the title of the book is the result of conversations I've had, a bunch of conversations I've had, a lot of them with builders who say, oh, we need to not build so airtight because that's causing problems. A house needs to breathe. And no, that's not the answer. A house needs to be as airtight as possible. And then there's a bunch of other things that you do to get good indoor air quality.
0: One point I wanted to skip back to, you had mentioned something about visiting my house and I want to give credit where credit's due. I think a lot of the fact this indoor-outdoor connection we developed came from a book called The Pattern Language, which Chris Dorsey actually gave me a copy when he found out we were building a house. So Marilyn and I poured through all the little elements, I don't know what else to call them, but little synopses of different elements. And we did a lot of thinking about how to design the house using a pattern language. So have you read the book? Have you looked at the book?
1: I have not. I know about the book. I mean, everybody in architecture knows about the book. My background is physics, but it's been on my list. And the author, I can't remember his name at the moment, but he just died last year, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Alexander, Christopher Alexander, Alexander Christopher. I don't know. I think it's two first names or two last names.
0: Yeah. Just on that physics, you said, You come from the world of physics. I'm sure that helps with the physical parameters of construction, airflow, heat movement, moisture, that kind of thing. But what led you from physics to the energy vanguard?
1: Physicists led me from physics to energy vanguard. (laughs) More specifically, a particular group of physics faculty members. I was teaching at a university in Georgia, somewhere in West Georgia. I had got a tenure-track job there, and it was miserable for me. I hated the job. They hated me. It was mutual, and it, I didn't last there. So during that time I was there, the four years I taught there, I bought some land and built a house on it. That was both my therapy for my experience at the university and my launch pad for my new career.
0: Interesting. So is the HVAC design doing it around the country building a staff of four. I'm sure it didn't start from four. So it seems like, is there just your outreach is growing or the recognition that good HVAC design is needed? Is that growing?
1: Yeah, probably both. I don't really do any marketing. I I mention our HVAC design services when I give talks and I mention it in articles and it's on our website, but I don't really have to push it because we have lots and lots of business. We're about eight weeks out, seems like all the time, trying to get that down. But that is not something that we started off doing. Well, actually, when I started my first company in 2004, when I left academia, the very first paying job I got was doing a, a manual J-load calculation. And from there, I started doing a whole bunch of other things too. And I got into home performance contracting. But now we're more focused. We're doing the HVAC design. And then I'm out there doing the proselytizing.
0: <laughs> yeah. If anyone who's listening is not following Energy Vanguard, either on LinkedIn or subscribe to the free newsletter or looking at the blog, I'll just say you're missing out. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not following Energy Vanguard, you're missing out. I consider all your materials well-written. And actually, you wrote one when you were here at my house, and you need a certain amount of time and space to put the thoughtfulness that you put into these to make them so well-written. It's really a, an art, I'll say. So,
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. I think you do great there. To-
1: it's interesting. I, now, I have written an article at your house. I have written an article and published it while flying on a plane <laughs> with Wi-Fi on the plane. Wi-Fi isn't good enough on all flights for me to do that, but that particular flight was good. And it was a fairly short article and easy to write. I've written articles all over the place. In the middle of the night at Building Time Summer Camp, my first time there. <laughs>
0: You mentioned Building Science Summer Camp a couple times. Now, why don't you explain to listeners what it's about? And you've been a number of times today. I've been about three or four times, but you've been going a number of years, correct?
1: Yes. My first one was 2011, and I've been to every one since then. This year will be my 11th one, I guess, in 2023. There were two years they didn't do it, so that's why this is number 11. It's an invitation-only event put on by Building Science Corporation, which is Joe... Stebrick and Betsy Pettit. They bring in some of the best building science experts in the world to give talks. So there's three days of sessions at the Westford Regency Hotel where about 400 plus people sit and listen to these incredible talks. And then at the end of the day, we all take the shuttle and go over to Joe and Betsy's house. And there's lots of great networking and food and drink and The Building Science Boogie Band plays every night. It's an amazing event, really amazing event. And I said it's invitation only. The way I got in, Joe didn't know who I was. So I wrote this article called, I Don't Need No Stinkin' Building Science Summer Camp (laughs) in 2010. I was on Twitter, doing a lot on Twitter back in 2010, and, and watching all these people at summer camp tweeting about building science stuff and what the speakers were saying. So That got my mind going, and while I was at the gym, this article kind of wrote itself in my head, and I went back to my computer, and it poured out of my fingers into the computer. I published it on the last day of summer camp, 2010, and the people I knew there, some of the people I knew, Carlsville and Michael took the article and showed it to Joe, and Joe said, oh, that's great. We should invite her. (laughs) (laughs) I said, no, no, it's not a woman. But yeah, so I got the invitation that way.
0: You'd mentioned that the Westford Hotel, which has been traditionally where it's been held for the last few years, I understand it started really small when it started well over 20 years ago, but 400 people in one room in the Westford Hotel. Last year, some special treatments were made to that room. You want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, so last year, COVID was still pretty active. Actually, it's still going on now. I just heard from one of my summer camp friends, who is a regular and a front row geek who's not going to make it because he just got COVID. So it's still happening. But last year, the measures they took to make summer camp safe, well, there are a number of things. And Bill Bonflath, an engineering professor at Penn State, talked about this and talked about the exposure reduction due to those measures. A bunch of measures. Number one, MERV thirteen filters in the heating, and the air conditioning system serving that room. They went up to the the rooftop to get the facility manager. They went up to the rooftop. They pulled out the either MERV-6 or MERV-8 filters and swapped them with uh, MERV-13. Also, while they were on the rooftop, they checked the ventilation. There was a ventilation system built into the air handlers, and the dampers for the ventilation system, though, were closed. So they opened the dampers. The buildings that had this kind of ventilation system, if they use them, their utility costs go up because they're bringing cold outdoor air in the winter. They're bringing in warm outdoor air in the summer. So it's cheaper for them to use the system if they don't bring in outdoor air. So they just close the dampers a lot of times. Who knows how many buildings that's true for. But they opened the dampers. So we had MERV-13 filtration and we had ventilation. And then we also had in the rooms, we had three Corsi-Rosenthal boxes, which are portable. MERV-13 filtration devices made with a box fan and four MERV-13 filters and some tape and some cardboard. (laughs) And last year at the conference, I gave a talk on that particular device. Of course, the Rosenthal box, a portable DIY MERV-13 box fan air cleaner. (laughs) The long, more descriptive name for it. And then another measure they had was upper room UVGI. UVGI stands for ultraviolet germicidal irradiation. I think they had five of them in the room. And so ultraviolet light, it's high energy radiation, can zap viruses and bacteria, deactivate them, kill them. And that happens in the upper room because for a lot of these kinds of devices, you don't want them exposed to people because it's bad for people. So that's aimed at the upper room, high ceilings, but the air is circulating. So you're zapping the stuff in the upper air, it circulates, and so it cleans the overall air. And the result of this is that there were no reported cases of COVID coming from people in that room. So that worked.
0: That was August of 2022.
1: Yep, August of 2022, last year. And one of the big takeaways from that is, for me, things always Sink in a little deeper when I keep thinking about them and working with them. And Bill Bonfest's talk, especially got me thinking about this and realizing I sort of knew it, but I understood in a new way from what he said that indoor air quality is a layered approach. You need a bunch of different things. It's not just ventilation. A lot of people think, Oh, we want good indoor air quality. So we need ventilation. Well, yeah, that's part of it. And one reason people think that ventilation is the absolute Top thing you can do for good indoor air quality is we have this saying, which is a really important saying build tight, ventilate right. And so it sounds like that's the only two things we need to do air tightness and ventilation. But no, we also need good filtration that can remove a lot of the particles and that can reduce the need for ventilation sometimes. You have to be careful with that. And we want source control. That's probably the most important thing. Try to keep bad stuff out of the air to begin with. In fact, Joe Stebrick wrote an article ooh, probably a decade ago, classic article of his. I highly recommend anybody interested in this stuff to go read it. It's called, first, deal with the manure, and then don't suck. <laughs> the deal with the manure part is source control. And he wrote that because there's this quote from the 19th century by this German guy, and it says, if there's a pile of manure in the room, don't try to solve the problem with ventilation, remove the pile of manure.
0: <laughs> Pretty classical thinking there. Yeah. You mentioned something a couple minutes ago. Who knows how many buildings have these issues with ventilation? Actually, you do because you carry something with you.
1: Well, I do. It's it's behind me on the table over there. I have a little Aronet 4 carbon dioxide monitor, and I take it with me in when I go on planes, when I go to airports, when I go to conferences, when I go to restaurants, I don't do it as much as I used to because things have calmed down a little bit, but I still do. And then I've got it on this trip. So one thing I'm finding is that it measures three things. It measures temperature, relative humidity, and carbon dioxide in the air. The carbon dioxide level is that number is not the number. It's not the carbon dioxide in the air that you need to worry about. The carbon dioxide number just tells you how good the ventilation system is, how much air exchange there is happening with outdoor air in between indoors and outdoors. And if the carbon dioxide level is high, that means you're not getting enough air exchange for the number of people in that space. So you could bump that up higher, but it doesn't mean that you have really bad indoor air quality because you could have good source control So, the load of pollutants is really low to begin with. So, there's not as much need for dilution with outdoor air. The temperature and relative humidity part are important as well. So, I've been staying in hotels on my book tour. I'd stay at your house one night, but the night before that, I was in a cheap hotel in West Virginia. The last two nights, I was in better hotels in Rochester and the Hudson Valley area. The cheap hotel in West Virginia, the carbon dioxide level got up to over 1,500 while I was sleeping. It started high and it got higher while I was in that room. The other two hotels, carbon dioxide level stayed between 700 and 800 all night long. So that tells me that their ventilation system is exchanging air because I'm in the room breathing the whole time, exhaling carbon dioxide, and yet the CO2 level stayed relatively low, below 800, which is good.
0: I was going to say, this is in comparison to outside the good Aspect. I just brought up a graph here of atmospheric CO2 from 1960 to 2020. And you probably know the levels are your guess, but I'll just read them off the screen. 320 parts per million it used to be in 1960. And in 2020, it's about 410. Yep. So that's as fresh as air can get from a CO2 perspective, generally speaking.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. So when you're talking about the levels, 400-ish is your baseline now. You're not going to go lower than the outdoor level. That's the minimum you're going to see inside is if you've got lots and lots of ventilation, like on a day when you have the windows open, you're going to be same as outdoor levels. Yeah. And you mentioned 1960, 320, that's about when I was born. So I was born when the CO2 level was about 320. And now we're pushing 420 now. And of course it goes up and down. Everything's always changing, the other thing I want to say about that, there's the cheap hotel with the high CO2 at night, and then the better hotels with the low CO2 at night. But there's one thing that they all three had in common that I could read on my Aranet monitor, and that was the relative humidity. Seems like very few hotels know how to do humidity control. The cheap hotel got 77 78% relative humidity. It was bad. But the other two, the nicer hotels, were still close to 70%, about 70%. Seems like very few hotels know
0: how to do humidity control well. Those are the kind of things that you talk about in your book. Going back to your book, I'm just going to read like a couple chapter headers here is understanding moisture. And then one of the subtopics is the story of peeling paint, the direction of moisture flow. This is where I encourage people to take a look at the book. You sell it directly from your website.
1: We sell it directly from our website, but True Tech Tools also has some copies. So anybody listening to this podcast, I encourage you to go to True Tech Tools and buy a copy if you're interested. They've got it for sale and they they are amazing at shipping. You order today, it's going to go out very soon.
0: Yeah. Usually if it orders in before 2 p.m., it goes out that day. But to kind of bring it back to this isn't just theoretical. This is very practical. The advice given in the book. There's a lot of great photographs of real-world applications. And can I say how to do things wrong and how to do things right, both ways?
1: Yeah, I don't just sell the bad stuff. I don't just show the good stuff. I want people to see. And I've got some before and after pictures in there too. Like in chapter eleven on how to integrate control layers with the building enclosure properly. There's a section on attic knee walls. And one of the Energy Vanguard newsletter subscribers and blog readers sent me some pictures of his house and the before and after pictures that he did. So he's got these attic knee walls separating conditioned space on one side and unconditioned attic on the other. And the floor joists going under that knee wall were wide open. So that means the hot attic air in summer can get right under that floor and make it very hot in there. radiant floor. <laughs> yeah. You don't want a radiant heated floor in summer though. And in winter, it was radiant cooled because the cold air goes right into those spaces. So he sent me pictures of the before and after of what those the spaces between the floor joists look like when he put the blocking in there and, and got it all sealed up.
0: And it's really about understanding the flow of energy, heat, and moisture. That's the subcontext to almost all of this.
1: Yeah. Chapter five is building science 101, where I talk about those three flows
0: ham, heat, air, and moisture. Ham. Yep. Need some ham. And then we also know that naked people need building science.
1: Correct. Naked people need building science. When you get up and you just feel like jumping on the bed naked, if you're in an old house in front of a big single pane window and it's really cold outside, you're going to need to jump really fast to stay warm because that window is going to suck a lot of heat out of you because the radiant heat transfer is what a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people think, oh, comfort, I just need the right air temperature. No, no, no. Comfort is way more than just air temperature. And radiant temperature, the temperature of the surfaces around you is actually more important than the air temperature. And I learned this firsthand in the house that I built 20 years ago. It was the most comfortable house I ever lived in because it had really good insulation, solid insulation, very airtight. And so the drywall on the inside of the house in wintertime stayed close to the air temperature and it was a lot warmer than a typical house. And I never would have thought I could have done it, but we would keep the thermostat set at 65, actually about 64, 65 degrees. And well, we had it set on Celsius. So I would set it at 18. So 64 or so, 18 Celsius. And it was fine. And it was fine not because I'm from Vermont, I'm not from Vermont. (laughs) It was fine because the temperatures of the surfaces were warmer because they weren't losing heat to the outside.
0: I'll make the assertion that a lot of HVAC contractors who are building science curious listen to this podcast. And I'll say that understanding the fundamentals and the examples of what you show in this book can help them understand solving problems that their customers will present to them. Do you have any examples of that where sometimes I think Jim Bergman calls it, like system fixation, that it's all about just the plant that cools, heats, and dehumidifies the air? But when you think more broadly, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So when an HVAC technician gets called out for a house with a heating or cooling problem,
0: Yeah, there is a
1: fixation on the equipment and they'll check the refrigerant and look at the capacitor and (laughs) all the stuff around the equipment. But sometimes the equipment's fine. It's working perfectly. The problem is on the other side of the air handler in that crawl space, the place where they didn't go, there's a duct that's been disconnected. It fell off. Maybe a raccoon knocked it off or something. Who knows? But disconnected ducts are very common. So that's one example. And So many problems are related to airflow. Sometimes it's just low overall airflow because there's lots of resistance in the duct system, and there's lots of resistance because the duct system wasn't really designed. It was just thrown together, and they used a lot of bad fittings. The ducts are too small for the airflow, and they end up with lots of problems. So somebody who understands airflow and duct systems can spot that kind of stuff. And going beyond that, it's not always just the distribution side either. It's sometimes the problem is not related to the mechanical system or the air distribution at all. It's the enclosure. Maybe their problem is mean radiant temperature because they've got a knee wall with no insulation in it.
0: Your recent blog post, in fact, the one this week. That I wrote at your house. Wrote at my house, yes. Referred to sizing equipment. Want to give us like a quick synopsis of that?
1: Sure. The title is five tons is never the right answer, meaning a five ton air conditioner heat pump is not what you want to choose because it's number one, the typical house size in the US is twenty five hundred square feet or less, and that's the about the average. The new houses certainly at the average size or even bigger, don't need five tons total. So putting in a five ton system means you're oversizing the system for the house. And that also makes it difficult to distribute the air because If you do have a house that has a five-ton load, let's say if it's a new house, it's going to be a really big house if it really has a five-ton load. Because if you're meeting code or coming close to meeting code, you don't have five tons unless you have a ten to 15,000 square foot house, may have five tons total. But then the house is so big, you don't want to use a single system for that because it's going to be a nightmare trying to get everything heated and cooled properly with just one system. And also, In the article, I think the first comment I got was by somebody who works for one of the big heating and cooling equipment manufacturers. And he said, you nailed it. And I think he gave some other reasons in there too. And he said that the five-ton systems don't come close to actually being five tons when you look at the actual capacities of them. So it's five tons nominal, but you're not getting five tons of capacity out of it.
0: You wrote a book. You wrote this book. Was it just something like you set yourself to thinking, I need to write a book for a reason, or just, I need to write a book because I want to collect all these thoughts. What really drove you to actually think that people would buy the book? Not that I'm not saying it's a bad book, but what's going to be the person of interest that buys this book?
1: People who write books are rich and famous. And so I wanted to be rich and famous.
0: <laughs> That's what you wanted to be. Yes. Okay.
1: No, I really like to write, as you may have known, even before I wrote the book, because I've been writing this blog. And when I started the blog in 2010, the articles were just flying out of my fingers. I was not like Lloyd Alter, who writes four a day sometimes, or did anyway. I was writing four or five a week sometimes. So Every day I was trying to get an article out in the early years, first few years. I'm slowed down. Now I'm doing one a week, sometimes less than one a week, but I like to write. And after putting all this stuff together, and I also, I love to teach, which it's all connected and I've got all this content and I wanted to have, have it consolidated because somebody can get a really good education going through my blog, but it's hard to navigate through and find things in the right order. And I wanted to put it all together. But it's not just a collection of my articles. A lot of it is freshly written stuff. I tried putting a bunch of articles in there and tailoring them for the book, but that was too hard. So I just mostly wrote fresh for the book to make it cohesive.
0: So the Energy Vanguard work you would be doing for these various forms for 15 years, what can you say about the trends? Do you see, from your perspective, things getting better, more application, more challenges? What are you seeing?
1: I think things are getting better. Yes. We have a lot of good education resources out there now on I mean, my blog, Green Building Advisor, Building Science Corporation, Brian Orr's HVAC School, which is amazing. He does so many amazing things. I, I, I really don't know how he does it, but <laughs> there's a lot of really good resources out there for learning this stuff and. It's available to anybody who works with buildings and wants to learn more, and it's also available to anybody who lives in buildings. So this, or even even if you don't live in a building, it's available to anybody. But some of it is more technical and oriented more for the professionals in the field. Some of it is oriented like my stuff. I think I walk the line between technical and layperson friendly, and people tell me that it works pretty well.
0: Good. So what's next after the book? Are you going to repackage it in like a feature length movie or anything like that
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 with ryan gosling yeah there you go <laughs> playing me yeah <laughs> i'm trying to get some online training stuff out and i need to do more with that and and maybe write more books someday who knows
0: excellent I want to thank you for spending the time here with me and your busy agenda, your busy itinerary. I'm a little jealous I'm not going to be a building science summer camp this year, but I'm fine with that. I will catch up with that later. Any closing thoughts for the listeners?
1: Closing thoughts. Well, yeah. So there's lots of technology out there. You talked about trends. So one of the big trends right now is electrification and decarbonization. And I am all on board with that trend. I like electrification. My house, I went all electric with after I bought it in 2019. So we got rid of the gas. It's all electric heat pumps, heat pump water heater, and we already had an electric range, but you have to know what you're doing. There's some key things that you got to know. So you can't just throw a heat pump in any house the way people throw air conditioners and furnaces and boilers in houses, because in wintertime, you could suffer from it. Summertime, if they're, contractors know how to do air conditioning pretty well and heat pump and cooling mode is really just an air conditioner so it's in the heating mode that there's the big difference so getting that right is important so it has to start with the load calculation you got to do the equipment selection right and even before that ideally if it's an existing home changing over to a heat pump You do some work on the enclosure, insulation, air sealing, maybe better windows. Windows are a little iffy, whether they're going to help much or not. But make some improvements to the enclosure to bring down the load. And that also helps the utilities because the utilities, they're kind of afraid of what might be coming with electrification. Because if you start throwing a whole lot of heat pumps online and they all have electric resistance auxiliary heat. In the wintertime, on the cold days, that overloads the utility. You can end up with big problems. So put the insulation and air sealing in and improve the house first. That reduces the load of heating and cooling you need, which also reduces the electrical draw from the utility. So,
0: Do you get into the cutover point between heat pump and resistance? Do you talk about that in the book or in your blog at all?
1: I do. There's an appendix with more information about heat pumps. And the reason that's an appendix is because when I was putting together a list of words for the index, I looked for balance point in the book and I couldn't find balance point anywhere. So I said, holy moly. And it was too late because we already had the layout done. I couldn't go back and put it in the chapter without incurring a lot more cost and a big delay. So I just made another appendix in the next edition. If there is one, that'll go in the chapter. With heat pumps. In the body. Okay. So yeah, I do talk about that because air source heat pumps, which are using heat from the outdoor air to heat the house, lose capacity when it gets colder. Well, depending on what kind of heat pump it is, but but all of them eventually will lose capacity if it gets cold enough. So you've got to have some provision for what heat you're going to use when the outdoors is too cold and you can't heat well enough or get the kind of heat pump that can do everything. Go way down. Like my house. My house, I have no auxiliary heat. Gary Nelson in Minneapolis, whose picture is in that appendix, has a heat pump with no auxiliary heat in Minneapolis. He's got a really, really good building enclosure and very airtight, as you would expect from Mr. Blower Door.
0: Yep. And I also shut off my auxiliary heat. It's only there. Yay. Yeah. We could talk for hours, but it's Friday afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. And you've got other fish to fry there in Western Massachusetts. Allison, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's your second visit. We should do another one in, in a little while, maybe in the next year or so. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. All right, Bill. Thank you. All right, Thank you, Allison. Thank you for listening to this podcast where Allison Bales shine some light on the science of building science for residential construction. There's a lot of other great trade-related resources and influencers out there, including the HVACR School, HVAC Shop Talk, Stephen Reardon, HVAC Reefer Guy, Tool Pros, Service Business Mastery, Quality HVAC, HVAC Overtime, HVACR Videos, HomeDiagnosis.tv, AC Service Tech, MeasureQuick, and the Misfits of HVAC. I also host the Res Talk podcast, where you can learn more about energy efficiency, residential energy efficiency, and the HERS rating process. If you like what you heard today and not yet subscribed, please consider doing so by hitting the subscribe button in your podcast app. You can also follow Building HVAC Science on Facebook by just typing Building HVAC Science, or you can follow us at TrueTechTools.com. And here's a special offer code, HVACBS, for a nice discount on the products we sell at TrueTech Tools. If you want to reach out and get in touch, you can contact me at marketing at truetechtools.com. And I am, in full disclosure, one of the co-owners of True Tech Tools. The opinions voiced are those of my guests or myself, depending on who is speaking, of course. I want to thank you for listening in again on this episode. Hopefully, you're enjoying the content and we'll keep on producing more and more on the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Take care.